It's time for Radio Cows, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Wednesday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, we will share with you conversations with interesting Arkansans on primary sources, chewing the fat with Rex and Paul, interviews with some of your favorite musical artists on Arkansas Sounds, content from the Butler Center's collections, information about what's happening in the library system, and much, much more. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocals at cals.org. This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cals Communications and Public Relations Department. For more information about Radio Cals, including links to resources mentioned in our segments, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Primary Sources, a podcast of the Central Arkansas Library System. I am Matt DeCampbell, and our guest this time is Mr. Kelly Bass, the CEO of the Arkansas Museum of Discovery. Thanks for being here, Kelly. Thanks for having me, Matt. Of course. Uh, I've known Kelly a long time in a lot of different roles, uh, but we're going to start all the way back. Let's go to the beginning. What? Uh, where'd you grow up? What was it like? What did you uh, want to be when you grew up? Well, I'll tell you. I um, I was the third and and youngest child of Martha and Warren Bass. My dad was a CPA. Uh, was a managing partner of a firm in Little Rock. Worked downtown, and I I grew up in what at the time was West Little Rock, which was a little bit um, past Cantrell and University. Uh, until I was eight years old, and my father had been born in Bryant in 1922, and his father died when he was 10 years old, and his mother died when he was 11 years old, and he had to move in with an older brother and his wife uh, in Little Rock, and he just, as he went through his life and his career, he had this dream of moving back to Bryant someday. So in 1963, when I was, at that time I was three, he bought 40 acres in Bryant from the son of a former slave who was at that time very, very old for $10,000, <laughs> 40 acres of it's now a subdivision in Bryant. And we moved out there the summer uh, before my fourth grade year. So I went fourth grade through 12th grade in Bryant. When I got to Bryant in fourth grade, there were 50 total students, two classes of 25. By the time I graduated eight years later, there were 200. Now, a lot of that was driven by white flight, kind of sad to say, but true. That was not why we were there. But I had a very different upbringing than my sisters who were both, you know, went to Hall High School and we belonged to the country club. And, you know, I grew up, by the time I was in fifth grade, both my sisters were out of the house and um, we had 40 acres and my dad was, you know, we had a tractor and we had a truck and I could was pretty good at putting the bush hog and the blade and the harrow and the plow on the tractor and we had a big garden and bush hogged a lot and had a lot of dear friends that I made early in my years at Bryant who were still my best friends. I've got probably six or eight friends I've known since either from fourth grade to sixth grade and we're still kind of joke we're the only ones who put up with one another. <laughs> I wonder uh, if, did you ever find out if your dad bought the land from the son of a released slave was that his 40 acres? That yeah. He w- yeah that was. I mean that was that was the, the, very the land he got. Wow. And it was uh, yeah it's in an area now it's uh, it's kind of near Mills it's really near Mills Park in Bryant which Again, Bryant's a totally different animal than when I lived there. I mean, when I graduated high school, there wasn't even a convenience store in Bryant. 
If you wanted a Coca-Cola or a Sprite or anything after 8 o'clock at night when the Dairy King closed, <laughs> you got it from a vending machine outside of, um, you know, outside of the gas station or something. Wow. Totally different place, but it was cool. And my father was friends with Wilbur Mills. Reynolds owned 80 acres, kind of catty corner across the road from, from our land. And like Reynolds and Alcoa bought up a ton of land just in hopes there was enough bauxite to mine. And then they realized there wasn't on that land. It just lay there, sat there. So they do- donated it for a for a park. Wilbur Mills got Mr. Reynolds to do that and they named it Mills Park and Mills Park Road and the road that goes through the park is Warren Bass Circle. Ah. Yeah. So you you'll always have a connection there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, geographically if Yeah, took my took memories. my in-laws down there and so they could see the sign. So all the time that you were uh, you know making friends in your small class and going through school at Bryant, what did you want to do with your life? I thought I'd be a lawyer. I really did. My sister ended up going to law school, graduated by the time I was in eighth grade at Judge Ellen Brantley, retired circuit judge here now. Um, and then when in 10th grade, I had played football for one year and decided I really didn't like contact. And if you don't like contact, football's not your sport. No. And then I became a manager. And, and then so I was, you know, doing schlep work. And by the 10th grade, realized, why am I doing this, you know, all day and all night for no money and no fun? I was in the office of the coach telling him that I was quitting as a manager when the editor of the Benton Courier walked in to try to recruit someone to write the Bryant Hornet football game stories for the Courier, and I was that guy. I was in, and so I became a newspaper staff member. And then when I was in 11th grade, my father had a friend who was a, Bob Douglas was the managing editor of the Arkansas Gazette, and he, Bob Douglas hired me or got me hired as a copy boy, which uh, is a, a job so far down the food chain that it's been evolved out. It doesn't exist anymore. And um, Paul Johnson, um, who was a longtime Gazette staffer and editor, um, gave me an opportunity the summer after my sophomore year in college to be an intern in the feature section. So I interned each of the summers, including even I interned over Christmas break my senior year. Graduated from Rhodes College in Memphis, which was then called Southwestern at Memphis, on a Saturday. And uh, for less than 48 hours later, I was at the Arkansas Gazette, where I stayed until the day the Democrat bought it and closed down. So what was it like in Little Rock working for the Gazette in the 80s when you had a lot going on? Oh, it was great. I mean, the 80s were rocking and rolling in Little Rock. You know, we were, the sports page moved, you know, George Eldridge owned the band box, and and Max Brantley, my brother-in-law, wrote an article about the best burgers in the state and named it the best burger, which got the white-collar crowd going there. Then he opened the sports page, which is still there on Louisiana Street, and, you know, Lassiter and Company was going, Bond Daddy business was hopping. And it was just the go-go 80s, the Reaganomic 80s, and, you know, it was a it was a party time, and it was a high, you know, economy was cooking, and I was 23, 24 years old, going to SOB, writing about rock and roll music and single and having just a big fun time. What were the three best concerts that you covered in the 80s? Oh, gosh. Yeah, well, the best concert I ever went to is before I covered it, and then I, I wrote an article about this one time for Swarry. It was Bruce Springsteen at Robinson Auditorium in May of 1976. And he'd already been on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and only 500 people showed up. It was the most just only time in my life I lost all sense of place and time. I, I really did. Um, one of the great concerts I ever – my first byline ever in the Arkansas Gazette was me covering – the Rolling Stones at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas in the summer of 1981, right after I'd graduated from college. That was an amazing experience. I remember sitting, I had a press box pass. So I'm sitting in the press box in the Cotton Bowl, and there's about three people up there. Nobody's, <laughs> you know, anybody else with the brains downstairs with their notebook. 
And this guy, every time they play a song, he'd tap me and go, what's, what's the name of that song? I'd go, Jumpin' Jack Flash, <laughs> Honky Tonk Women. It was good. But there was Barton, man. I went, I went to hundreds of shows at Barton. I mean, one of my favorites was the Gap Band. I saw the Gap Band. It was a Gap Band, Daz, and some other opener. And I had to have my copy turned in by a little after 11. And I had to go to the payphone and call and say, this ain't happening tonight, because the first band hadn't even gone on until close to 11. I think it went to about 2 o'clock in the morning. Wow. But it was really, really fun. I saw, um, <coughs> excuse me, they, if, right when MTV came out, <coughs> There were some shows that Benny Turner, a local musician in Jubilee Dive, was promoting at the Hall of Industry. And there was a, a band known as The Call. They had a hit called, a minor hit called When the Walls Came Down. And I went to the Hall of Industry to, to review The Call. And the opening act I'd never heard of, but it was this hot rod guitar player named Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, of course, I was standing about as close to him as I'm sitting across from yeah. you. And he just, I mean, just we said, this is something serious. And I saw him again. Uh, opening for Huey Lewis in the news at at Barton and, and people booed him because they were there to hear I want a new drug and ah. just pop rock cool I like Steve right. I like Huey Lewis yeah and then oh, I saw no, him yeah. the third time he headlined at Robinson with Omar and the Howlers opening for him so I got to see him three times before his tragic right. tragic death right I also got to see Leonard Skinner twice before the plane crash that happened uh, the my first semester of my s freshman year in college including one of the crazier concerts, and this was just to go see, not to review, because I was still in high school. Bicentennial Day, July 4, 1976. At the Liberty Bowl, 100 degrees, ZZ Top, Leonard Skinner, Blue Oyster Cult, and the Outlaws. So the Gazette gets bought out. Did you think about going into journalism in another vein and sticking with that, or was it, well, was my, it time? Well, my situation was this. I, I had Gannett Corporation, you know, the Patterson sold to Gannett in 85 or 6. And then in 1988 or so, they founded USA Today. And part of the deal was they would send people from their papers they owned to work at USA Today. So I got to do that for four and a half months, which was an amazing time because I was there from August of 89 to January of 90. And in that little four-month window, what happened? The Berlin Wall fell. Right. And uh, the World Series was postponed because of the earthquake, earthquake. In, yeah. in San Francisco between them and the A's. So very, and, and while I was up there, I was working nights, but I was in features. I, I would go over to the sports department where the only other people were. I was the only features person up there at night. And I met a guy and uh, who ended up coming to Little Rock to be the sports editor, Don Collins. And he said all he really needed, he was told, was a good assistant sports editor. So I moved to sports. And then <clears throat> I got hired as the columnist uh, in September of 90 and served as the sports columnist for the Gazette from September of 90 to, January, to July of 91. At which point they said, you know, Don's going back to USA Today. We really think you ought to be the sports editor. And I was like, why would I want to give up this great gig that I've got? I mean, I'd covered why they sent us to these things. The Democrat was doing the same thing. Wally Hall was going to the Super Bowl, the Kentucky Derby, the World Series. Yeah. Why does anybody care what Kelly Bass or Wally Hall thinks about the Oakland A's against the Cincinnati Reds? We were going and doing it. Um, and they said, you really ought to take this job. Well, they knew at that point they were going to close the Gazette. And I think they were trying, really, I think they were trying to put me in a position where I could find a job easier than being a sports columnist. Yeah. Because I ran a sports department. I could, you know, and I went to Springfield, Missouri. When the Democrat did buy the Gazette, I got a job as the sports editor of the Springfield paper. So I took a huge pay cut and went to work for Arkansas Times, um, <clears throat> which turned out to be a great experience. I was back covering music and being the, being the entertainment editor and dealing with the same kind of people and going, now I was going to Juanita's instead of SOB and doing a lot of fun stuff. 
Um, but it also forced me, because of my financial situation, to freelance and do a lot of things. And my biggest freelance customer was Axiom. And so I started doing freelance for them in about 97. And in 99, they hired me. Brought you in, didn't they? Yeah, and then I went, I was the second kind of internal facing communication guy there. And in about nine months, I moved into the corporate office. And then for eight plus years, I was Charles Morgan's right hand guy communication person. So that was the pivotal moment in my career. I'd been on an 18 year newspaper track. Now it varied between sports and, and in Springfield, I got into the news side and was assistant managing editor. And then I started getting into corporate communication and, and and working at Axiom, which was a billion plus dollar company with global footprint and being able to travel the world with Charles and just learn a lot from really smart people was a, is, you know, really been why I've been able to do what I've done since. And I got a phone call <coughs> from Jerry Adams, one of the original 25 yeah. or 30 at saying, hey, Mary Good uh, is looking for somebody to come work with her at UALR because a guy named Joe Swati had left and Jerry had asked Mary what Joe did for her and when she told him he said you ought to hire Kelly Bass and she'd been on the board at Axiom so I got hired to go to UALR and be the assistant dean for external affairs in the College of Engineering and Information Technology and I'll tell you I, but, but I, I learned a lot there I made a lot of, I made a lot of um, built a lot of relationships with people who worked at companies that wanted to hire our amazing students because I will tell you those students at the College of Engineering and Information Technology at UA Little Rock are fabulous. A lot of them come from small towns, great work ethics, um, de dependable, responsible, smart, ingenious. And so I started working in play, helping people get introduced to opportunities for internships and jobs, and I raised money to support recruiting efforts, to support summer camps, engineering camps, things like that. And I had been very involved in nonprofit work when I was at Axiom. And by the end of the time Jerry Adams had left, I was the decision maker for Axiom on how it spent its corporate outreach money to nonprofits, so which made me very popular. And I was on the board of Heart Association and Youth Home. Uh, I had been on the board of Riverfest and the Downtown Little Rock Partnership as well. But I realized that I was now going to be not much help to particularly Heart Association and Youth Home because I didn't have any money other than my very limited personal funds. Sure. So I said, well, you know, I want to stay involved in the nonprofit world. What makes sense for me now? And I, I had a good friend, Dale Ingram, whose wife, Ellen, also, a, he worked at Axiom with me. Also, a good, his dear wife and our dear friend, Ellen, ran the Single Parent Scholarship Fund of Pulaski County. And more of their recipients were UALR students and any other, in Pulaski Tech close behind. So I had said, hey, Ellen, if you're ever looking for help on the board, I'd, I'd love to do that. And, and I joined that board. And then I'd had one engagement when I was at Axiom with the Museum of Discovery. And I knew that the mission of the museum was to ignite a passion for science, technology, and math. And I, and I said to myself, every student at, in my college had that passion ignited somewhere along the way. Yeah. Because otherwise they wouldn't be taking, you know, STEM differential courses. equations in three terms, you know, calculus one, two, and three in physics and all that. Nor were they working hard to become engineers or computer scientists. So I volunteered my service on the Museum Discovery Board, and I, I got that opportunity. So I'm, I'm bopping along doing that. Um, and like any board member, there were things going on at the museum that I wasn't really sure why we did, and there were things we weren't doing, like closing during Riverfest, which we no longer do, that uh, I didn't understand why we didn't do. And so uh, almost near the end of my third year on the board, I was, they were already asking, do you want to do another three-year term? And Nan Sells had announced her uh, departure, her retirement. I decided to apply for the job. Uh, a lot because I felt like when I looked around the boardroom, they were, I mean, they're all great people. And, but the, the, 
the real uh, unifying or, or common characteristic was most everybody around that table had brought their kids to the museum and believed in what it was doing. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have the STEM employment perspective that I'd, I know I'd made a lot of relationships at Southwest Power Pool and Molex and um, LM Wind Power and Caterpillar and Wellspun and these places that wanted to hire these students of our, in our college from UA Little Rock. And so I, I pitched myself as having those r- relationships and thought I could build a board that had a few more STEM-related people on it. And I got the job, and I've been there four and a half years in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you first started, uh, b- both with the board, but then your limited interaction before then, I have to think it was a big growth time for the museum because, I mean, it had the, the Clinton Library open up, and that mm-hmm. just, of course, was just the first domino through the river market. I mean, it had already, of course, with Moses Tucker, been coming very far from where it had been, but that really... Yeah, you know, push the pace. It changed everything. And and what you know, what what the other thing that happened is, um, it's interesting because one of the the great philanthropic organizations in Arkansas and Oklahoma and Nevada history is the Donald W. Reynolds Foundation. Yeah, and they had um, it's interesting the way it worked that they had not ever funded museums, but the chairman of their board in Las Vegas had taken his granddaughter to the Las Vegas Children's Museum. And had seen the magic, both in his the magical transformation in the in the pure joy and excitement of his own granddaughter, and then all those around, and thought, you know, there's something going on here. This is important stuff. And so I came back, and 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 they started getting some requests, like all foundations do, from lots of organizations. But a lot of museums in Arkansas were asking Reynolds for money, and they came up with an idea and said, rather than just fund these in a one-off manner. Let's try to build a consortium of museums. And, then, and they came to the Museum of Discovery, you know, well before my time, and said, we'd like you to be the hub of a network. And they, get, they provided a planning grant and said, what would this look like and how would it work? So Diane LaFollette, who now is running the, um, is the uh, Mid-America Science Museum in Hot Springs, where she's overseen some amazing transformations there, was the, the person who masterminded this with Reynolds' help and Nan's help, too, and they came up with the, what they call the Arkansas Discovery Network. And so we, they got a grant in about 2004 or five to get the thing off the ground, and it included six museums. And what the network does is supply exhibits to each of these museums, and they move around from museum to museum on a six-month rotation. So if you get at the Museum of Natural Resources in Smackover, you can say, hey, we've got a new dinosaur exhibit opening next week. we got this cool you know, other exhibit, you know, different stuff. And then it also put tinkering studios in each of these six museums. And so while Arts and Science Center of Southeast Arkansas in Pine Bluff is primarily an arts center, a really good one, but from theater to art, then you've got Museum of Natural Resources and the Arkansas State University Museum in Jonesboro are history museums of that area. The Snacko was all about the oil boom and ASU's about that area and the history there. And then you've got Mid-America Science Museum, Museum of Discovery, or Science Museums, and now the Amazium. Science Museum. But they got, there's tinkering studios and all those. So it gives you some common ground, which is where kids come and do hands and families do hands-on activities every day in the tinkering studio. So Museum Discovery runs the Arkansas Discovery Network. So we bring in experts from around the country to teach new techniques. We build kits to send home with the members so that they're like, hey, now we can do these new cool tinkering activities. So that's how the Mu- Museum Discovery got really rolling with the network. Well, then Reynolds comes in and says, now it's time to transform this museum. 
So again, Diane and Nan, with a lot of great help from the staff and board and everyone else, envisioned this new museum, um, raised $1.8 million in pledges to get the $9.2 million that was up for a grant. And in April of 11, closed the doors of the Museum of Discovery. It reopened in January of 12. And I was on the board at that time. And we're trying to project, you know, how many more people are going to come? I mean, who knows? And there were some, you know, there's industry stats and all that. And, you know, you're going to get 60% more people or whatever. And so they're like, I think we're going to do better than that to start with because they wound down at the end of 11. So they, they really weren't in the beginning of 11 before they closed in April. So the first full month of being open was February of 12. And you compared to February of 11, we projected or they projected and the board approved about a doubling of attendance. It was six times as many people. And then the other thing that happened was in January of 14, I'm sitting in my office and Kendall Thornton, our chief marketing officer, came in and said, I just got a call from NBC. And I said, I don't guess you mean Channel 4 down the street. She goes, no, NBC. I said, well, what do they want? I said, well, the guy said, I'm a producer with The Tonight Show. And I don't know if you know this or not, but here in about a month, Jay Leno is leaving The Tonight Show and Jimmy Fallon is taking over. Now, Kendall's a a hip, young, connected person. She's like, yeah, that's big news. I know about that. And said, well, Jimmy wants to do science demos on his show, and we're reaching out to museums around the country to see if you have someone you'd like to nominate to be Jimmy's science guy. So we said, Kevin Delaney. Kevin's office was right next to mine. That was on a Friday. They needed something by the following Friday. So I called a guy that uh, Leonard Chambly that I've used for, had used at UALR for video production and, and used at the museum, and he came out on then the following Wednesday. Kendall was Kevin's assistant. They set up before the museum opened. Kevin did about... 12 minutes of the same kind of science that he did every day yeah. and all our other educators did every day for school groups. Right. And uh, you know what? They loved it. And uh, they, the first time he was on was Cinco de Mayo of 2014. Uh, that happens to be the month I watched our attendance start doing this. But we just thought we were, weren't very good at projecting yearly attendance. Sure. And by the end of the year. Seasonal and, yeah, yeah. By the end of the year, we were right where we thought we'd be. Well, then 15 just completely went, kept going. And now Kevin's been on six times. It's been a great help and had street science. And, I don't think it's so much that people came to the museum expecting that Kevin would be there entertaining him. I think it was more that just validated what we do. And, you know, people said, hey, the Fallon's people could have picked anybody from anywhere, and they picked a guy from the Museum of Discovery in Little Rock, Arkansas. That must be a great place. And Beth Nelson, our program coordinator who books our school groups, will tell you we have more out-of-state school groups, and we want to go check out this cool place where Kevin works. Yeah. So – that was very helpful, too, and so we've, we've ridden that. We've done about 157000 the last two years, and uh, things are going well. We've we got, we got a lot of great great stuff happening. We're, and as a matter of fact, something I'm super excited about is, for the first time ever, the Museum of Discovery science educators are going to be a featured attraction at the Arkansas State Fair. Oh. So through the run of the fair, um, you can see our educators – um, for doing a science show 26 different times across. It's twi- tw- three times a day on Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays, and twice a day on weekdays that aren't Friday. I think with the State Fair that you are going to have the opportunity to, to expose a lot of kids that otherwise are, have a much lower probability of coming across that kind of interactive science in their lives. Exactly right. You know, everything we do at the museum, we, we balance um, – our mission, which is to expose as many people as we can to what we do and the financial viability of it. This is one that works for both. You know, the, the pay is good and we get the chance to do this. But, yeah, we do a lot of outreach into poorer areas of Little Rock where we don't command nearly the fee we can to go somewhere else because we want to, to expose people. And I will tell you, I'm in the Rotary Club of, of downtown Little Rock, and 
have a reading project where we go and read to third grade classes. And I went to Rockefeller, Rockefeller Elementary last year where my mother had taught. And when I told them what my day job was, they were like, oh, we've been there. It was so cool. This guy, like, lit this thing in his hand, and it blew up. And blah, blah. I mean, <laughs> I went back and said, don't think you're not making an impact. These yeah. kids remember this stuff. And we have a lot of people, too, who look out for the less fortunate. We have funders who say, look, I want to give you money and engage with schools that have a very high percentage of free and reduced lunch, knowing that their parents or whom, you know, they're, they're raised by their grandma, whomever is raising them, would not have the financial wherewithal to be able to afford to bring them to the museum. So the funders pay, the schools bring them, and they get exposed to this with at no no cost. Is there any particular regular exhibit or or regular uh, you know program or function that you have been surprised at how much more interested in it the kids were than than you'd expect them to be? Well, not not so much. There's there's well there's one. And this is really, you know, one of our challenges is to be relevant to kids who are three and relevant to kids who are 13. Sure. But there's a big exhibit down on the, that's in the Earth Journeys, which is in the only tall spot in the museum that we have, we, I think it's technically called Airways. We call it the whoosh because it's, it's a big bunch of pneumatic tubes and air flowing through them. And you take, kids take scarves and adults take scarves and put one in and watch it go all around and fly out. And, I mean, I remember seeing kids, you know, three and four the first time they've done it, shrieking with delight and staying there for an amazing amount of time <laughs> doing this over and over and over. And that's kind of one of our – every museum has iconic exhibits. Yeah. That's an iconic exhibit. The tor- Tornado Alley Theater, which yeah. recreates a tornado that hit near the governor's mansion in 1999, complete with uh, weather footage, uh, you know, that includes, you know, Ed Buckner – Tom Brannon and Don Scott, all of whom 18 years later still work at that station. Don left for a while, came back. Yeah. Um, that's one of our iconic exhibits. It scares a lot of kids, though. I'll, I'll, you know, you'll be walking by and you can hear the tornado happening in there, and then you'll hear screaming kids running out or see screaming kids running out. But some of the other things that you know have really, we have an adult event called Science After Dark that is the last Thursday of the month from six to nine p.m. The first nine months of the year, we don't compete with Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. But that event, when we started in 2012, averaged, I think, 62 adults would come per time. We broke 100 once. Last year, we averaged more than 500, including over 1,000 for our Star, Star Wars signs. We had 350 people, adults, 21 and over, making messes in the street last Thursday night at Mestival After Dark <laughs> um, with foam and other, you know, exploding Gatorade balloons and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, did a huge foam cloud, blew up. It's just, you know, so that's really grown. And then the thing I'm most proud of that's happening right now is a program that we started a few years ago with a grant from Caterpillar that's called very generically Girls in STEM. With the goal being to expose more girls age 11 to 15 with the possibilities of careers in science, technology, engineering, and math related fields. So we recruit 30 girls, and it's free, and we don't want money to be an issue for this one. And they, we engage with female mentors from STEM-related businesses. So we've had doctors, chemists, um, computer programmers, engineers, and we work with them to, to develop a hands-on activity. Yeah, and that's, you know, because that's what we want more and more people to think about the Museum of Discovery is not just a fun place to bring your kids, but an important part of the STEM education pipeline and an important part of the STEM workforce pipeline. You know, we're, we're about to launch a program that the, the Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh wrote us into a grant to take a program called STEM, Ex- STEM Excellence Pathways that they developed and launched in, in Pennsylvania 
and they picked four other museums around the state, around the country, to try to implement it in their areas. And they're big museums, Fort Worth Center of Science and History, St. Louis Science Center and Discovery Place, which is an amazing museum in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the Museum of Discovery, or the Arkansas Discovery Network as operated by the Museum of Discovery. So we're going to work with at least 10 schools and hopefully more, 10 we can fund with the grant, on just helping them assess the quality of their STEM curriculum. We don't judge them. We don't come in and grade them. They grade themselves based on a lot of criteria that Carnegie Science Center and a bunch of people put together. So that, again, plugs us directly into the schools. And what Carnegie's learned is a lot of other schools want to do that, too. So they've made it free. <clears throat> the rubric is all free online, or they can do a fee-for-service where our educators will, or our facilitators will come in and help them through the process. What is the easiest way to get information about the museum, to get a membership, to get involved? Museumofdiscovery.org. Um, great website. Easy to donate there, easy to get a membership there, easy to book a birthday party there, easy to book a summer camp there, although not so easy now because we're just about sold out. There's still a few slots left, but we're, we're doing twice as much camp business as we were doing five years ago. And just come to one of our Science After Darks with adults or come on uh, any other day with your kids. Uh, the first Sunday of every month, which will, is Dollar Sunday. So anybody can come to the Museum of Discovery for a dollar. And, so, and we like to do that because we don't want financial barriers to be an issue. Well, same reason we find supporters so field trips can sometimes come for free. But yeah, Museum Discovery Network. We also have a great Facebook page, and apparently a lot of Twitter and Instagram activity. <laughs> although I'm I'm rarely seeing that. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, uh, thank you for being here, Kelly. Of Thanks, course, man. and for everyone listening, well, you can go to cals c a l s dot org and find out information about programs, whether they be partnering with Museum of Discovery or of the many other programs throughout the year that we have throughout the library system. Uh, thank you for listening, and we will see you the next time around on Primary Sources. Radio Cals is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System and its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, please visit cals.org and butlercenter.org. Our producer is Glenn Whaley, and our production manager is Brett Ratliff. Voices by Jasmine Job and John Miller. Engineering and editing by Brett Ratliff, Michael Stotts, and Anna Lancaster. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 Little Rock.